0: We're looking this morning at the idea of so close yet so far away. And it's amazing to me how the Lord works these things out when we're moving through a passage of Scripture. We're going to look at the idea of Palm Sunday this morning, but really the whole idea is explained exactly where we're at in the book of Romans. I had an interesting experience of this so close yet so far away. Uh, This past week, when we were on our way down to Florida for spring break, we had, um, no, I'm sorry, we were on our way back. On our way down, we had stayed at this different kind of hotel uh, that was like, it didn't have a normal lobby. You walked, it it had the, you know, cover that you kind of can drive under and park, but you walked into this strange lobby, and you had to pick up a phone for the desk worker to buzz you into the next door, and it was just a odd desk, and that kind of prepared me for the experience coming back, because on our trip back, we were staying at this really nice hotel that we probably couldn't afford except that it's usually for, reserved for businessmen, businesswomen traveling and extend, extending their stay and stuff, and, and so uh, all I had seen was the picture of the hotel on the website, and so when we pulled in, we pulled into a building that looked so similar to it. It had the overhang that you could drive and park underneath and all that. I just didn't notice when I was driving through that the, the sign on the front uh, drive of this place was different than what it didn't say Hawthorne Suites; It said something else. And um, so I walk in. I pull under the overhang, and I tell the kids as I normally do, okay, sit tight, everybody. Uh, I'll go check us in, and I'll get the carts, and then we'll all unload and stuff. So I go in and I walk into this lobby and I come to the door and it's 1230. I'm tired. It's late. You know, we're, we're b- fighting traffic from Florida all the way up here to uh, Louisville is where we stopped. And, um, and I'm just wiped out. I'm so glad to be at the hotel finally. What I didn't realize is we had pulled into an assisted living facility. <laughs> okay. So I get to this door, and it's kind of like a door like the last one that we had. It's locked, and there's a doorbell next to it. So I'm like, okay, I'm used to this. I ring the doorbell, and this lady, short lady, comes to the door, and she's holding a walkie-talkie. She opens the door, and she's like, can I help you? And I'm like, yes, you can. And I walk in, and I'm like, "Um, I'm checking in. (laughs) Yeah. So she's like, you are? And I'm like, yep. And I'm like, can you direct me to the front desk? And sitting next to me is a desk okay, that has nothing on it. It's just a normal desk and stuff. I guess somebody sits there during the day. And she's like, it's right there. And I was like, okay. I said, um, well, I need to check in. She's like, do you have a room? And I said, well, no, not yet, but I have a reservation. She's like, you do? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you know, and she's like, "I let me go get someone. And so she goes around the corner, and I'm looking around. I'm like, this place is nice. I mean, it was like a lobby area. There were some, some tables set up for breakfast and stuff over there. And I'm like, that's a nice breakfast area. And a lady comes around the corner, and she's kind of laughing. She's like, sir, uh, this isn't a hotel. This is an assisted living area. You're too young to check in here. She actually told me, in my defense, she said it happens all the time. And the other lady's like, he said he had a room. (laughs) She's like, I'm thinking, what is he doing coming back at 1230 at night? Yeah, so that was my experience of being so close, but yet so far away. I mean, can you imagine if I showed up with all my kids there? Yeah. Yeah. The uh, family had a great laugh about that when I got back in the car. We are looking, uh, really, if you're familiar with Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry, you understand what is meant by there, by the crowds are so close, yet they are so far away. They're so far away from understanding salvation through the God-man. Jesus Christ, they're so far away from it. If you, if you remember, um, I loved walking through the Passion Week when we were uh, teaching through the Gospel of John. And if you remember from that, what has happened is Jesus has done his climactic um, miracle uh, uh, prior to his resurrection of raising Lazarus from the dead. And this was just a matter of weeks earlier, and it's, it's created such a buzz around Bethany, which is right next door to Jerusalem, and then he heads out of town up to Galilee, and, and he does some ministry there, and then he starts pilgrimaging down with his disciples and the normal Passover pilgrimage that heads down the Jordan Valley toward Jerusalem. And as it, it happens, building up to Passover, the week building up to Passover, which also happens to be, we know, building up to his crucifixion, the pilgrims are coming in, and they're jo- coming into Jerusalem, and they, the route is to come down from Galilee, cross the Kidron Valley, from the Mount of Olives, uh, just east of Jerusalem, and enter into Jerusalem. And But what Jesus and his disciples do is they stop off in Bethany. To be with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And Jerusalem is a buzz. The question is saying, will he show up? Will he come here? And people are saying uh, so much they're saying, we want to see Jesus and we want to see Lazarus. We want to see this person that, that he raised from the dead. That in their blindness, the, the Pharisaical rulers are planning not only to put Jesus to dead, death, but also to put Lazarus to death. I mean, what blindness! And so after spending the night in Bethany and letting the pilgrims that he had traveled with pass on into Jerusalem, the day of Palm Sunday as we know of it today is, is just Passover on steroids because they believe that their Messiah is in the area and could possibly come there that day. And so... Here is what we read in Luke 19, starting in verse 36. And this is after uh, his disciples go and get the colt for him to ride. It says, As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was draw- as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, broader than his twelve disciples, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And, and so, as I mentioned, this was tradition that those who were already in Jerusalem for Passover would kind of come out and would meet the pilgrims that were coming into Jerusalem each day, coming down the Mount of Olives, crossing the Kidron Valley. And it was a big hoopla, it was a big uproar, but this was like they'd never seen. How this was hyped up, how this was, was, was in, uh, brought about by the spreading the word and people that had traveled with Jesus and his disciples and had been watching him do miracles like healing blind Bartimaeus in Jericho, on their way there to Jerusalem. Laying their cloaks on the road, it it, it, sim- it symbolized their submission to Jesus as king. Waving palm branches, which we're told about in other accounts, symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory. This phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is from Psalm 118, 25 through 26. And it's a prayer of blessing for the coming messianic kingdom. Other accounts were told, as Jeff read this morning, Hosanna, they're crying out. Hosanna, which is Hebrew for save, please save us. Hosanna points to the celebration of Jesus as the political and Davidic Messiah, the bringer of the Davidic kingdom. So we go on reading in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So so they're saying to the Lord of all creation, tell them to stop praising you like this. And that's why he says, you know what? The stones would ring out. And praise my name if they didn't. Uh, as, as a friend told me once, um, there's a church that actually has stones at their entrance and engraved on it that says, if you don't, they will. If anybody wants to do that, that's fine with me. And so we pick up in verse 41, it says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, speaking to Jerusalem, And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The Old Testament spoke of God visiting as being a day of deliverance, a day that they would be truly delivered. And the irony here is the Jews were celebrating him because in their uh, tunnel vision, interpretation or view, just seeing one part of Jesus as the Davidic Messiah, the the fulfiller of the the God's covenant with King David, that that a descendant of his would sit on the throne of the king, his 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 uh, ancestor King David, and rule for forever. Their their tunnel vision view of this, the irony is that they saw Jesus as the deliverer of Jerusalem from the Roman rule. That was oppressing them. But in reality, because they were rejecting him as the deliverer of them from their sins, the one who didn't bring political salvation but spiritual salvation, because of their rejecting him, the Romans would come just 40 years later and tear the city down and not leave one stone on another. In their greed, in their burning of the temple, the gold that lined the walls would melt into the cracks between the rocks and in the Roman soldiers' greed, they would tear one rock off of another to get the gold out from in between it. They had rejected their Messiah. Had they rejected him completely? No. Jesus was a good guy. Jesus was giving them what they wanted, right? Je- they were all about Jesus. Jesus. But they didn't see him as the Savior from their sins. They didn't see their need for that. Less than a week later, the rulers and the crowds would respond to Pontius Pilate offer to release Jesus from jail. And they would say in John 19, 15, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate would say to them, shall I crucify your king? And we're told the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. They were going to see what Caesar would do. So what happened to all of Jesus' fans? Hmm? They go from praising him as their deliverer to wanting him dead by the worst execution known at the time. What happened to all his fans? I believe that we see this morning the answer is found in Romans 9, 30 through 10, verse 4. I love the sound of flipping pages. We read, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law Whereas Romans 9, verse 30 states the question, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? In other words, what happened to their fanaticism? What happened to, in that moment of them being fans of Jesus? The answer is this while unrighteous people can be saved through faith. Self-righteous people will be so close to salvation, yet so far away from being saved. While unrighteous people can be saved through faith, self-righteous people can be so close to salvation, but yet so far away from being saved. Some of you might have heard of a man... Or maybe just heard about him, named Milan Schipper this week. He was a Norwegian student who was excited. He always wanted he had plans to go to Sydney, Australia. And he was so excited when he found some really cheap tickets from the Netherlands to Sydney, Australia. And so he booked the flight and he and he got on the plane when the time came and he got flying. And he became quite disappointed to realize he ended up in Sydney, Nova Scotia, Canada. He <laughs> Never considered that there was another Sydney. What's, mo- what's even more fascinating, and I heard about this on the radio twice this week, and when I looked it up and read about it uh, this weekend, what's even more fascinating to me was he said he met another s- traveler from the U.S. who had made the same mistake. So close, but so far away. Israel saw, they knew that salvation and deliverance came from God alone. They knew that salvation and deliverance came from God alone, and it was only by His grace. but they believed that salvation and deliverance came from God alone and it was only by his grace and it came through their works. So close, yet so far away. And that explains the difference between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. It arrived them nowhere near where they were thought they would be still completely separated from God. And that was Jesus' message throughout the week. Bold, loud, and clear. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, that by the time Friday came, they were ready for him to be done away with. One writer says, Israel rightly saw the law, sought the law but missed its point by stressing works rather than faith. Why did they not attend even though they pursued righteousness according to God's moral law? It is a righteousness that is by faith. Their faith in their works disqualified them. The, I'm sorry, their faith in their works disqualified them from saving faith in God's Messiah. So two sad states we look at this morning. Two sad states that disqualify their devotees from salvation. First of these is religious about God but unsaved through Christ. This is what's going on in this crowd on Palm Sunday. Religious about God but unsaved through Christ. The condition that we're shown here. Well, let me, let me read it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, we're told in verse 32 of Romans 9. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The condition there that we're we're told about is that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. And why? The cause that we're told in verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Literally, you could read this, they did not pursue it out from faith. Like, like I'm over here at faith, and I'm putting my my trust in the fact that I'm saved through faith, and, and and I'm waiting for that righteousness to come out from faith. But instead, they as it was as if it were out from works, that it was going to flow out through their works. They would have said, they've renewed the Psalms. They would have said it's only by God's grace through works. And, And to be honest with you, there are plenty of churches that will say, salvation comes from God. Salvation comes through his sacrifice of Jesus and it is by his grace it is by his grace and you better believe on his grace and you better do this and you better not do this or he's going to kick you out God's righteousness does matter and we'll, we'll see that a little bit today. Romans 3, 21 through 23 reminds us, it taught us that we were made righteous through faith in Christ. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction." Why is there no distinction between Jews or Gentiles or prostitutes or good little kids that grow up in Christian homes? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is what verse twenty three tells us. And just to notice, and we'll and we'll we'll hit on this more when we get back to Romans after Easter. Uh, we're we're reminded this was all foretold that I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is a conglomeration of two different statements from the prophet Isaiah. In the two statements, they describe the contrasting reactions to Jesus as our Savior. First, stumbling over and being offended by Christ. And I think that offense is, what, you mean Nothing I do matters. It's just faith in you. Give me some credit. I mean, i got to be better than the prostitutes and the tax collectors. I can say that. Rod's not here. It's that season. (laughs) Second, the other option is believe and trust in Christ 100%. And you will not be put to shame standing before the Lord in Christ's righteousness. Now, I, I like to study sometimes uh, over at the Wabash Library, and sometimes I'm able to sit at the little, I feel like I've got, this, I've got a corner office, right? It's right, like right over the, the entryway to the library. And I saw this peculiar thing, okay? I know about like the, the Wabash guys that have the ratty, ratty hats on, man. I hope they like steam clean those things when they pass from one person to the other, but you know they're they're fraternity pledges, okay? And I'm just watching this peculiar thing, and each time you see, I'm watching out over the grass area, and uh, with the where the flagpole is, and each time you see one of these guys with these ratty hats on walk across the grass, they have to walk over and touch the flagpole and keep walking. And I don't know. Maybe that, that was the rule for the week. You know, if you're, if you're pledging for a fraternity and we don't see you touch the flagpole when you're walking across campus, you're out. That was just the practice. They were doing it in order to achieve something that they wanted to get at. You know, if, you, if I want to achieve this, I got to do this. And in the same way Israel... Is an excellent example to us of doing the right things, but the wrong for the wrong reason. Is God's righteousness important? Is it for, important for us to grow in in right living by God's standards? Is it important for us to grow, experience growing closer to Him by making decisions that bring Him glory and praise and pleasure? Yes. But not for the reason of thinking we're earning salvation. They were pursuing salvation as if it were dependent on their behavior. And the same temptation goes about today. And, you know, we can call it Jesus plus whatever. But we are saved. We are made righteous. Righteous. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus. Like the song sings, nothing in my hand I bring only to the cross I cling. So we've been told about Israel stumbling, and next here we were told by the Apostle Paul, he explains the reason for their being so close yet so far away. This second sad state that disqualifies. It's devotee from salvation. Zealous for God, but unsubmissive to the gospel. Zealous. It says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I think it's probably better to read that. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Being the, the obedience to God's moral law being the source of righteousness. Christ is the end of that. Another writer says, Jewish literature from this period often praises zeal for the law, even to the point of violently resisting those who wished to repress Jewish practice of the law. Kind of sounds like um, uh, radical Islam today, Sharia law. John Stott says the proper wording for zeal without knowledge or commitment without reflection, enthusiasm without understanding is fanaticism. So there's a reason why I ask, where did all of Jesus' fans go? You see, their being fans of salvation by works trumped their being a fan of Jesus especially when he started very pointedly saying your attempt at salvation by works is a bunch of junk. This zealousness without knowledge, zeal without really understanding. It it reminds me of two kids sitting there saying, my dad can beat up your dad. No way, my dad can beat up your dad. If my kids argued that with Probably 95% of the kids out there today, they would be zeal without knowledge. (laughs) I'm like, zip it, stop it. What are you trying to do to me? When it comes to salvation, it's either God's righteousness or our righteousness. It says being ignorant of the righteousness of God And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So, trying to establish their own righteousness for salvation is basically God saying, you don't qualify for my righteousness, and your problem is you don't understand my righteousness. It's a misunderstanding of the infinite, holy righteousness of God. Religion of salvation by works, it always requires for us as humans to be elevated. Be like, you know, I'm not that bad. Really, I mean, what do I really do that's all that bad? It's not like I'm Hitler. So in order for us to argue for salvation by works, we as mankind have to be elevated in our righteousness. But not only that, God's righteousness has to be brought down. It's not like God's gonna, you know, hold that against me. It's not like, you know, he's that picky. But it's an ignorance of the righteousness of God and it's an unsubmissiveness to his righteousness remember what Romans 1 16 and 17 taught us we're not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith because it is written the righteous will live by faith. In other words, a person is made righteous by faith. We also see here when it comes to salvation, the gospel is Christ's righteousness alone. We either have Christ's righteousness or we have no righteousness. I was trying to explain this to an older woman um, recently, and, and what what I how I tried to explain this to her maybe it's something that she could identify with, and she picked up on it. I said, "You know, there's some restaurants. Maybe you're you're used to this. They really don't aren't around anymore. There's some restaurants that are like suit jacket only or black tie only." I said, "Now, what happens if you go there and?" you're in a polo shirt, or you don't have a jacket on. And she said, they don't let you in. I said, that's right. I said, now some of them are pretty gracious, and maybe it'll cost you something, but what will they do? Well, they'll provide you a jacket. To wear. Because they hate to turn you away, but they're not going to degrade their establishment just to let you in. And I tried to tie that over to Jesus' parable about the wedding feast where it says that that the the host, the father, he, he welcomed people into the wedding feast and he gave them banquet clothes to wear. But what happens in this story is that there's one person that he looks over and he says, why is that person not wearing his banquet clothes that I gave to him? He doesn't want to. He said, get rid of it. And Jesus in that parable also was teaching the fact that it is standing in Christ's righteousness alone, a righteousness given to us, a righteousness that we are clothed in, that God graciously offers to anyone who would believe, that it is in his righteousness alone that we are able to stand before him. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This conjunction at the beginning of verse 4, 4, introduces a statement that is crucial to Paul's explanation of Israel's stumbling. In other words, he's saying, let me explain it to you. This is why. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The term end here means he's a, the a goal. He's the climax. He's what it was all pointing toward. It's like getting to somebody's house and them coming out and you're sitting in your car and they're like, hey, what are you doing? Supper's ready. You know, we invited you over for dinner. You drove over here. You got into the driveway. Come on in. And you're sitting there going, no, I just love your driveway. This is awesome. It's a great view here. Well, the goal of the driveway was to get you to the house, that you get you into it. That's what Paul is saying here. The goal of the law was Christ. And especially in this time orientation, Christ has come. Christ has been our sacrifice. Christ is raised from the dead. Why are you putting your faith in works? Just because well the law came from God. Well the law is a good thing, right? I mean the majority of the Bible's about it pointing to Christ. Salvation through the righteousness provided through Christ is the completion or the end of the law's involvement in salvation. Or again, as John Stott says, in respect of salvation, Christ and the law are incompatible alternatives. If righteousness is by the law, it is not by Christ. And if it is by Christ through faith, it is not by the law. Now that Christ has accomplished our salvation by his death and resurrection, he has terminated the law in that role. Or as Dr. Leon Morris says, once we grasp the decisive nature of Christ's saving work, we see the irrever- irrelevance of all legalism. When I was a kid, now I did a little research and you can still do this. I'm happy to hear that. But you've got to plan ahead. You've got to make reservations. But when I was a kid, <clears throat> I got to experience climbing up to the crown of the Statue of Liberty. Anybody done that? Climb to the crown of the Statue of Liberty? Pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty neat experience. Um, I think when I was climbing the stairs, I yelled something about being in the statue's dress or something. It was, I was obnoxious. <laughs> but so you can still do this. And, and so you have the pedestal at the bottom which is like a building that the statue sits on. And you, t- you, you can take an elevator from the base of the pedestal, the ground floor of the pedestal, up to the base of the statue. And at that point, you're inside the statue. And then you climb the stairs up the statue, and you're able to get to the crown. And the sights that you see from there and everything are amazing. It's an awesome experience. 377 steps it is, just to let you know. I mean, you know, the ones over at Turkey Run, that's 70 steps. This is 377 steps, so do your exercises beforehand. Now, now, what if the parent woke up, woke the family up, they're visiting New York, they're they're seeing the sights, and they woke up and said, hey kids, guess what? We're climbing the Statue of Liberty today. Awesome, wow, this is great. Yeah, we're going to get to the very top and we're going to be able to see like so much of New York and, and uh, it's going to be awesome. And so they get there and they get to the base of the Statue of Liberty and, and the parents are like, okay, I brought some chalk. Get it on your hands, this will help, I've read. Start climbing. And they start climbing the side of that pedestal. It's ridiculous, Right? Both involve climbing. Both involve getting to the top. Both involve a very, a very uh, high intention goals, if you will. Both involve the statue. And, and in a lot, of, you know, there's no access. I don't believe to the inside once you start climbing up the outside. Here's why I tell you about this. Salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ. It's not by God's grace through faith in my works. And that ruins it, it makes it something completely different. In the same way that you could say, Well, what's the big deal? I'm climbing the statue, but it's not going to work. It kind of makes you think about what he says. Uh, if, if you're pursuing righteousness uh, through the law and you miss it in one step, you're guilty of all of it. The same way you miss one step climbing up that statue, and it's not just going to be a bad day. You're not just going to be disappointed you didn't get to the top. You're going to crash when you get to the bottom. The same way, it's kind of like this. I, I, I think of it like this. That elevator in the pedestal is God's grace bringing me into relationship with him. And the safety of that, you know, ridiculous staircase that now goes up the center. When I was a kid, you know, you climbed up the outside of the interior of the thing. You know, you could jump off and kill yourself. But within relationship with God, being made in Christ, accepting a relationship with Him by His grace, through faith in Him alone. I'm brought into relationship with Him. Does it involve growing in His righteousness? Does it involve good works? Yes. Out of gratitude to Him. Is it two ste- three steps forward, two steps back a lot of times? Yes. In the safety, in the cover, of being in relationship with Him. So are good works important in relationship to God's grace, in the security of my relationship with Him? Absolutely. But they are not to be confused with me thinking that in my own strength, I can get to Him by climbing on my own. And the person that thinks that way need to change their thinking and enter into relationship with him through faith in Christ alone. And guys, our heart should be the same heart as what Paul has. Is this just, you know, preaching to the choir or us just thinking about, oh, you know, and and I share the gospel every week. Because this is, we can be so close, but so far away. With total expectancy that some of you sitting here may just be realizing, I'm climbing on the outside. And I'm not in Christ. But in having a relationship with God, knowing Christ as my Savior through faith. What should be my heart? What should be my desire? What should be what I'm thinking about, about my unbelieving neighbors, about my unbelieving friends, my unbelieving family members, maybe those that are so close but so far away? It should be what the Apostle Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is For them is that they may be saved. It's not that they might tweak their theology, it's that they may be saved. You are surrounded with people who go to church every Sunday that are so close, but yet so far away. So close yet so far away. As we come to communion this morning, as we're celebrating communion in leading up to our Easter service, and we invite everyone who has a relationship with God by His grace through faith in Christ to come to communion. And why do we say it needs to be by grace through faith in Christ, not through your works, not through communion. Because even in this action, we can think, we can be so close, yet so far away. If I'm taking that piece of bread and I'm taking that cup and I'm thinking, my salvation, or or, my doing this makes me saved, or something that I did a long time ago, that made me saved. We invite everyone to take communion who knows Christ as their Savior. Having come to Him and confessed, Lord, I can't save myself. But what your Son did in sacrificing Himself as the Almighty God and in rising from the dead, that can save me. And so I trust in that alone. And as you come forward or you go back to one of the back tables during our time of response, we invite you to just reflect on the fact that he has saved you through what he did in breaking his body and pouring out his blood. But if you're like, I'm confused about this, just Just pass on it. Okay? But we would love to talk to you about it. I'll be up front here. Well, Jeff's sitting over here. How perfect there. Or one of our shepherds, Kurt in the back there. Dan will be up here. Mark's sitting back there. Or anybody here could bring you to Christ, I'm sure. Don't be so close yet so far away. Let's bow our heads. I'll invite the praise team up.